0: Book One, Chapter Four of The Brothers Karamazov. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ernst Patinama. The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Translated by Constance Garnet. Book 1, Chapter 4, The Third Son, Alyosha He was only twenty. His brother Ivan was in his twenty-fourth year at the time, while their elder brother Dmitri was twenty-seven. First of all, I must explain that this young man, Alyosha, was not a fanatic, and, in my opinion at least, was not even a mystic. I may as well give my full opinion from the beginning. He was simply an early lover of humanity, and that he adopted the monastic life was simply because at that time it struck him, so to say, as the ideal escape for his soul, struggling from the darkness of worldly wickedness to the light of love. And the reason this life struck him in this way was that he found in it, at that time, as he thought, an extraordinary being, our celebrated elder, Zosima, to whom he became attached with all the warm first love of his ardent heart. But I do not dispute that he was very strange, even at that time, and had been so indeed from his cradle. I have mentioned already, by the way, that, though he lost his mother in his fourth year, he remembered her all his life, her face, her caresses, as though she stood living before me. Such memories may persist, as everyone knows, from an even earlier age, even from two years old, but scarcely standing out through a whole lifetime, like spots of light out of darkness, like a corner torn out of a huge picture, which has all faded and disappeared, except that fragment that is how it was with him. He remembered one still summer evening, an open window, the slanting rays of the setting sun, that he recalled most vividly of all, in a corner of the room the holy image, before it a lighted lamp, and on her knees before the image his mother, sobbing hysterically with cries and moans, snatching him up in both arms, squeezing him close till it hurt, and praying for him to the mother of God, holding him out in both arms to the image, as though to put him under the mother's protection, and suddenly a nurse runs in and snatches him from her in terror. That was the picture, and Alyosha remembered his mother's face at that minute. He used to say that it was frenzied but beautiful as he remembered but he rarely cared to speak of this memory to anyone in his childhood and youth he was by no means expansive and talked little indeed but not from shyness or a sullen unsociability quite the contrary from something different from a sort of inner preoccupation entirely personal and unconcerned with other people, but so important to him that he seemed, as it were, to forget others on account of it. But he was fond of people. He seemed, throughout his life, to put implicit trust in people, yet no one ever looked on him as a simpleton or naive person. There was something about him which made one feel at once and it was so all his life afterwards, that he did not care to be a judge of others, that he would never take it upon himself to criticize, and would never condemn anyone for anything. He seemed indeed to accept everything without the least condemnation, though often grieving bitterly, and this was so much so that no one could surprise or frighten him, even in his earliest youth." Coming at twenty to his father's house, which was a very sink of filthy debauchery, he, chaste and pure as he was, simply withdrew in silence when to look on was unbearable, but without the slightest sign of contempt or condemnation. His father, who had once been in a dependent position, and so was sensitive and ready to take offence, met him at first with distrust and sullenness. He does not say much he used to say and thinks the more but soon within a fortnight indeed he took to embracing him and kissing him terribly often with drunken tears with sottish sentimentality yet he evidently felt a real and deep affection for him such as he had never been capable of feeling for anyone before everyone indeed loved this young man wherever he went and it was so from his earliest childhood. When he entered the household of his patron and benefactor, Yefim Petrovich Polyenov, he gained the hearts of all the family, so that they looked on him quite as their own child. Yet he entered the house at such a tender age that he could not have acted from design nor artfulness in winning affection. So that the gift of making himself loved directly and unconsciously was inherent in him, in his very nature, so to speak. It was the same at school, though he seemed to be just one of those children who are distrusted, sometimes ridiculed, and even disliked by their schoolfellows. He was dreamy, for instance, and rather solitary. From his earliest childhood he was fond of creeping into a corner to read and yet he was a general favorite all the while he was at school. He was rarely playful or merry, but anyone could see at the first glance that this was not from any sullenness. On the contrary, he was bright and good-tempered. He never tried to show off among his schoolfellows. Perhaps because of this he was never afraid of anyone. Yet the boys immediately understood that he was not proud of his fearlessness and seemed to be unaware that he was bold and courageous. He never resented an insult. It would happen that an hour after the offence he would address the offender, or answer some question with as trustful and candid an expression as though nothing had happened between them. And it was not that he seemed to have forgotten or intentionally forgiven the affront, but simply that he did not regard it as an affront, and this completely conquered and captivated the boys. He had one characteristic which made all his schoolfellows, from the bottom class to the top, want to mock at him, not from malice, but because it amused them. This characteristic was a wild fanatical modesty and chastity. He could not bear to hear certain words and certain conversations about women there are certain words and conversations unhappily impossible to eradicate in schools boys pure in mind and heart almost children are fond of talking in school among themselves and even aloud of things pictures and images of which even soldiers would sometimes hesitate to speak more than that much that soldiers have no knowledge or conception of is familiar to quite young children of our intellectual and higher classes. There is no moral depravity, no real corrupt inner cynicism in it, but there is the appearance of it, and it is often looked upon among them as something refined, subtle, daring, and worthy of imitation. Seeing that Alyosha Karamazov put his fingers in his ears when they talked of that, they used sometimes to crowd round him, pull his hands away, and shout nastiness into both ears, while he struggled, slipped to the floor, tried to hide himself without uttering one word of abuse, enduring their insults in silence. But at last they left him alone, and gave up taunting him with being a regular girl, and what's more, they looked upon it with compassion as a weakness. He was always one of the best in the class, but was never first. At the time of Yefim Petrovitch's death, Alyosha had two more years to complete at the provincial gymnasium. The inconsolable widow went almost immediately after his death for a long visit to Italy with her whole family, which consisted only of women and girls. Alyosha went to live in the house of two distant relations of Yefim Petrovitch, ladies whom he had never seen before. On what terms she lived with them, he did not know himself. It was very characteristic of him indeed that he never cared at whose expense he was living in that respect, he was a striking contrast to his elder brother Ivan, who struggled with poverty for his first two years in university, maintained himself by his own efforts, and had from childhood been bitterly conscious of living at the expense of his benefactor but this strange trait in Alyosha's character was not, I think, criticized too severely, for at the slightest acquaintance with him anyone would have perceived that Alyosha was one of those youths, almost of the type of religious enthusiast, who, if they were suddenly to come into possession of a large fortune, would not hesitate to give it away for the asking, either for good works or perhaps to a clever rogue. In general, he seemed scarcely to know the value of money— not, of course, in a literal sense. When he was given pocket-money, which he never asked for, he was either terribly careless of it, so that it was gone in a moment, or he kept it for weeks together, not knowing what to do with it. In later years, Pyotr Alexandrovitch Miusov, a man very sensitive on the score of money and bourgeois honesty, pronounced the following judgment after getting to know Alyosha here is perhaps the one man in the world whom you might leave alone without a penny in the centre of an unknown town of a million inhabitants and he would not come to harm he would not die of cold and hunger for he would be fed and sheltered at once and if he were not he would find a shelter for himself and it would cost him no effort or humiliation and to shelter him would be no burden but on the contrary would probably be looked on as a pleasure he did not finish his studies at the gymnasium a year before the end of the course he suddenly announced to the ladies that he was going to see his father about a plan which had occurred to him they were sorry and unwilling to let him go the journey was not an expensive one and the ladies would not let him pawn his watch a parting present from his benefactor's family they provided him liberally with money and even fitted him out with new clothes and linen. But he returned half the money they gave him, saying that he intended to go third class. On his arrival in the town, he made no answer to his father's first inquiry why he had come before completing his studies, and seemed, so they say, unusually thoughtful. It soon became apparent that he was looking for his mother's tomb, he practically acknowledged, at the time, that that was the only object of his visit. But it can hardly have been the whole reason of it. It is more probable that he himself did not understand and could not explain what had suddenly arisen in his soul, and drawn him irresistibly into a new, unknown, but inevitable path. Fyodor Pavlovich could not show him where his second wife was buried for he had never visited her grave since he had thrown earth upon a coffin, and in the course of years had entirely forgotten where she was buried. Fyodor Pavlovich, by the way, had for some time previously not been living in our town. Three or four years after his wife's death, he had gone to the south of Russia, and finally turned up in Odessa, where he spent several years. He made the acquaintance at first, in his own words, of a lot of low Jews, Jewesses, and Dukins, and ended by being received by Jews high and low alike. It may be presumed that at this period he developed a peculiar faculty for making and hoarding money. He finally returned to our town only three years before Alyosha's arrival. His former acquaintances found him looking terribly aged, although he was by no means an old man. He behaved not exactly with more dignity, but with more effrontery. The former buffoon showed an insolent propensity for making buffoons of others. His depravity with women was not as it used to be, but even more revolting. In a short time he opened a great number of new taverns in the district. It was evident that he had perhaps a hundred thousand roubles or not much less. Many of the inhabitants of the town and district were soon in his debt, and, of course, had given good security. Of late, too, he looked somehow bloated, and seemed more irresponsible, more uneven, had sunk into a sort of incoherence, used to begin one thing and go on with another, as though he were letting himself go altogether. He was more and more frequently drunk, and, if it had not been for the same servant Grigory, who by that time had aged considerably too, and used to look after him, sometimes almost like a tutor, Fyodor Pavlovich might have got into terrible scrapes. Alyosha's arrival seemed to affect even his moral side, as though something had awakened in this prematurely old man which had long been dead in his soul. Do you know, he used often to say, looking at Alyosha, that you are like her, a crazy woman? That was what he used to call his dead wife, Alyosha's mother. Grigory it was who pointed out the crazy woman's grave to Alyosha. He took him to our town cemetery and showed him in a remote corner a cast-iron tombstone, cheap but decently kept, on which were inscribed the name and age of the deceased, and the date of her death, and below a four-lined verse, such as are commonly used on old-fashioned middle-class tombs. To Alyosha's amazement, this tomb turned out to be Grigory's doing. He had put it up on the poor crazy woman's grave at his own expense, after Fyodor Pavlovitch, whom he had often pestered about the grave, had gone to Odessa, abandoning the grave and all his memories. Alyosha showed no particular emotion at the sight of his mother's grave. He only listened to Grigory's minute and solemn account of the erection of the tomb. He stood with bowed head and walked away without uttering a word. It was perhaps a year before he visited the cemetery again. But this little episode was not without an influence upon Fyodor Pavlovich, and a very original one, He suddenly took a thousand roubles to our monastery to pay for requiems for the soul of his wife, but not for the second, Alyosha's mother, the crazy woman, but for the first, Adelaida Ivanovna, who used to thrash him. In the evening of the same day, he got drunk and abused the monks to Alyosha. He himself was far from being religious, He had probably never put a penny candle before the image of a saint. Strange impulses of sudden feeling and sudden thought are common in such types. I have mentioned already that he looked bloated. His countenance, at this time, bore traces of something that testified unmistakably to the life he had led. Besides, the long fleshy bags under his little, always insolent, suspicious, and ironical eyes— Besides, the multitude of deep wrinkles in his little fat face, the Adam's apple hung below his sharp chin like a great fleshy goiter, which gave him a peculiar, repulsive, sensual appearance. Add to that a long, rapacious mouth with full lips, between which could be seen little stumps of black, decayed teeth. He slobbered every time he began to speak. He was fond, indeed, of making fun of his own face— though, I believe, he was well satisfied with it. He used particularly to point to his nose, which was not very large, but very delicate, and conspicuously aquiline. A regular Roman nose, he used to say. With my goiter I've quite the countenance of an ancient Roman patrician of the decadent period. He seemed proud of it. Not long after visiting his mother's grave, Alyosha suddenly announced that he wanted to enter the monastery, and that the monks were willing to receive him as a novice. He explained that this was his strong desire, and that he was solemnly asking his consent as his father. The old man knew that the elder Zosima, who was living in a monastery hermitage, had made a special impression upon his gentle boy. That is the most honest monk among them, of course, he observed. "'after listening in thoughtful silence to Alyosha "'and seeming scarcely surprised at his request. <coughs> "'So that's where you want to be, my gentle boy.' "'He was half-drunk, and suddenly he grinned his slow, half-drunken grin, "'which was not without a certain cunning and tipsy slyness. Hmm. I had a presentiment that you would end in something like this. "'Would you believe it?' you were making straight for it. Well, to be sure, you have your own two thousand. That's a dowry for you. And I'll never desert you, my angel, and I'll pay what's wanted for you there if they ask for it. But of course, if they don't ask, why should we worry them? What do you say? You know, you spent money like a canary, two grains a week. Hmm. "'Do you know that near one monastery there's a place outside the town "'where every baby knows there are none but the monks' wives living, as they are called? Thirty women, I believe. "'I have been there myself. "'You know, it's interesting in its way, of course, as a variety. "'The worst of it is it's awfully Russian. "'There are no French women there. "'Of course, you could get them fast enough.' They have plenty of money. If they get to hear of it, they'll come along. Well, there's nothing of that sort here. No monks' wives, and two hundred monks. They're honest. They keep the fasts. I admit it. Hm. So you want to be a monk? And do you know I'm sorry to lose you, Alyosha? Would you believe it? I've really grown fond of you. Well... It's a good opportunity. You'll pray for us sinners. We have sinned too much here. I've always been thinking who would pray for me and whether there's anyone in the world to do it. My dear boy, I'm awfully stupid about that. You wouldn't believe it? Awfully. You see, however stupid I am about it, I keep thinking. I keep thinking. From time to time, of course, not all the while. It's impossible, I think, for the devils to forget to drag me down to hell with their hooks when I die. Then I wonder, hooks, where would they get them? What of? Iron hooks? Where do they forge them? Have they a foundry there of some sort? The monks in the monastery probably believe that there's a ceiling in hell, for instance now i'm ready to believe in hell but without a ceiling it makes it more refined more enlightened more lutheran that is and after all what does it matter whether it has a ceiling or hasn't but do you know there's a damnable question involved in it if there's no ceiling there can be no hooks and if there are no hooks it all breaks down which is unlikely again for then there would be none to drag me down to hell, and if they don't drag me down, what justice is there in the world? Il faudrait les inventer, those hooks, on purpose for me alone, for, if you only knew, Alyosha, what a blackguard I am. Translator's note, it would be necessary to invent them. But there are no hooks there, said Alyosha. Looking gently and seriously at his father. Yes, yes, only the shadows of hooks. I know, I know, that's how a Frenchman described hell. J'ai vu l'ombre d'un cocher, qu'avec l'ombre d'une brosse frottait l'ombre d'une carrosse. Translator's note: I've seen the shadow of a coachman rubbing the shadow of a coach with the shadow of a brush. How do you know there are the no hooks, darling? When you've lived with the monks, you'll sing a different tune. But go, and get out the truth there, and then come and tell me. Anyway, it's easier going to the other world if one knows what there is there. Besides, it will be more seemly for you with the monks than here with me, with a drunken old man and young harlots. Though you're like an angel, nothing touches you. And I dare say nothing will touch you there. That's why I let you go. Because I hope for that. You've got all your wits about you. You will burn. And you will burn out. You will be healed and come back again. And I will wait for you. I feel that you're the only creature in the world who has not condemned me. My dear boy, I feel it, you know. I can't help feeling it. And he even began blubbering. He was sentimental. He was wicked and sentimental. End of chapter four. Recording by Ernst Patinama Amsterdam, the Netherlands.